Good afternoon, brethren. Very good to see more of you here than last week. We had quite a low attendance last week, and we still have some missing. Mr. and Mrs. Ames are off to New England, and I think that was probably announced or the announcement wasn't who everyone was, and Mr. and Mrs. Crockett are down in, in Atlanta, and Dr. Winnell, we need to pray for him, especially because he's having a public lecture up in Minneapolis, so our men are scattered. I'm sure some of the other brethren are here and there around the country and not here, but we had almost 150, and we've been averaging about 150 now for several weeks at least until this last Sabbath when people weren't back from the feast. So we're very, very grateful for that. I want to thank Mr. Pyle for the fine sermonette and certainly thank Mrs. Garber for the very beautiful song. A lot of you young women, and I'm not talking to just you here, you're all young, you know that, but around the world we have a lot of young women and in our society they're afraid that it would cramp their style and all if they would have children. Now we had this young woman up here singing and she's 39 and holding, but she has 12 children, 45 to 60 grandchildren, I don't know exactly, and several great-grandchildren. I think there's 77 or 78, something like that, in the Scarborough clan. <laughs> anyway, so she still retains her youth, and she can still sing and enjoy life and serve. And when she goes home to Kansas City, she's surrounded by grandchildren, and she's got some grandchildren right here, incidentally, through Patrick and Elizabeth and uh, so on. So uh, that's uh, wherever she goes, I guess. But especially in Kansas City, she has lots of, lots of grandchildren to surround her and encourage her. And, of course, she's living in the promised land, as you know. Missouri is the promised land, in case some of you have forgotten. And uh, so she goes back there. And you know the song, which is very true, everything's up to date in Kansas City. So everything's up to date as that was in the movie and the musical Oklahoma, that song, very cute. But it certainly is a wonderful place, and we're glad to have her here, and thank you for the, for the fine music. But she sets a wonderful example in that way of having a wonderful big family, not being afraid to have a big family, and still helping and giving and serving in the church in so many ways. Welcome to any of you who may be visitors. I think I met a couple from Kentucky coming through out in the hall as I came in. And we're glad to have you. Or any brand new people, please come up and say hello. And I'd certainly enjoy meeting you. We have been having continual growth in the work. And even this past week, I got a report showing we're having more prospective members, more go-tos. The number of every four-month period increases. And I added up, and it generally always increases, so we're very grateful that for that. And we're glad for the wonderful response to the telecast last week. It broke a lot of records for first-time responders and on the new uh, stations, which generally have not produced as many, but now they're coming up. So we're very grateful for that. Also, brethren, as if it has not been announced, we are undoubtedly going to have way over 7,000 people uh, that attended the feast when all the figures are in. At the last few years, we've had right at 7,000 or 6,893 or maybe 920. Then we, by counting the shut-ins, which some other Church of God groups, then we get barely over 7,000. This year, we won't have to count the shut-ins. I don't think, Rod, will we to get over 7,000, but we'll count them anyway, so it should get us up to 7,300 or 500 or whatever it is. So we are growing we had 60 people, brand new people from another fellowship come with us, brand new to us, as you know, during this past year. 
and we had other brand new people coming in Britain from the uh, uh, gospel channel from our telecast and others coming in through friends. And, of course, we just had about 50 or 60 people come with us of our Belgian brethren who'd kind of gone away at one point, and Mr. and Mrs. Apartian were over in uh, France uh, for the feast this year and helped unify the brethren over there. So we're very grateful that a, not quite a number now have come back with us over there. So right between those two groups, we can add in uh, over 100 people uh, plus brand new people coming in from the telecast in Britain and all across the United States and Canada. And part of that is because not just of our work, we're grateful to do the work and we want to. That's our reason for being. But also these things that are happening, prophetic things, are beginning to shake people up. And I think a lot of you know that as you hear the talk shows and you see the things on television and people are beginning to wonder what's going on, what is happening to our country. And they're beginning to realize that we're in a very terrible situation. Anyway, brethren, we are going to move ahead in the work, and God will be with us as we do our part. But I want to warn you, and I warned you a few weeks ago in a different way, but I really mean this just for you, brethren, for all you brethren around the world. I want to warn you about persecution. I felt that I haven't done that. I haven't wanted to discourage God's people. But before some really big, big things happen... And I don't know that they'll happen, but I'm pretty sure they will because of what your Bible says. Because of what your Bible says. You have to be ready. You have to think about it ahead of time. So I want to warn God's people, and I want to ask you this afternoon, are you ready? Are you ready for persecution? God's people have always been persecuted, God's true people, as you know. In Matthew chapter 5, right in the Sermon on the Mount, let's start out and see what the Bible clearly says about all of this. In Matthew chapter 5, I won't read all the here uh, blessings here uh, in Matthew about the uh, blessed are the poor in spirit and meek and hunger and thirsting, but down in verse 8 it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, Matthew 5 and verse 8. Matthew 5 and verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. God doesn't want us to play funny games. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in God's church and, and, and frankly expect to be protected or healed or delivered. You can't do that. You've got to be pure in heart and wholeheartedly committed to God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. God wants us to be peacemakers, not troublemakers, and not ready to fight others, even if they persecute us, frankly, when you understand it. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, it doesn't mean you're blessed if you get in trouble and you start a fight and, or you rob a store. That's not what it's talking about. If you're a Christian and you get persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Christ shows, and the whole Bible shows, our reward is in heaven. Christ and the Father are preparing a place for us, a job, a position, and He is going to break, bring that back, as it says in Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. He's coming back to earth, and He said, My reward is with me. The reward doesn't stay in heaven, but the Father and Christ are preparing that reward in heaven now. 
So that's where it's going to be, and it's going to be brought back here. Your reward is great in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. God's true prophets, God's true servants have always been persecuted. And that's going to happen again, I'm sure, in our day. Frankly, we had quite a bit of persecution in the early days under Mr. Armstrong because he was so powerful in the number of stations we were able to get on. There was no television and there was no Internet and he was just on the one media that they had beside the movies and that was radio. And he just blanketed the country. As many of you older brethren remember, you could drive around various parts of the Midwest and the South and you could literally hear the World Tomorrow program all through the day, sometimes four or five different times. And it was just there. And uh, it was very, very powerful, very, very widespread. And in those days, Mr. Armstrong often started out the program, which he stopped later. I don't think it was necessarily the best thing to do, but he would often start out. Um, uh, and greetings, friends. This is Herbert W. Armstrong bringing you to the news of today's prophecies of the God, the God prophecies of tomorrow's world, or however he said it. And then he would say, my friends, why are all these churches teaching the wrong thing? Why aren't they teaching what your Bible says? He launched right into that in the fourth or sixth sentence. And boy, that made the preachers mad. And that make other people mad too, all through the South and the Midwest. So I remember many times, Burke McNair and I went up to this on our tour in 1952 to this farmer's house. And a little guy with little tiny horn-rimmed glasses, he came out. He was about 5'5 five, five and maybe 120 pounds, but he had a gun. And he came walking out like this, and he said, Where are you boys from? And he said, Well, we're from Ambassador College. Armstrong, he says, you, you get. And he pointed the gun. Well, I was the leader, so I tried to talk, sweet-talk him. I said, Oh, we're just here to visit your wife. She wrote us, and you can sit with us. Everything will be fine. And the one he says, No, you get. And about the third time, he, he cocked the gun, and he said, You get. So we got, <laughs> and uh, we didn't fight him, and uh, I guess we could have snuck back around and tackled him or something, and we've had many, many times like that. My own mother was very upset. Jesus said, your enemies shall be in your own household, and my mother got very upset when I came to Ambassador College, and she got even more upset when my little sister, now Mrs. Ames, left she thought that Armstrong got Rod and Paul. Paul was Dr. C. Paul Meredith. He wrote the... And now he got Catherine. Boy, that made her furious. Later on, she softened, and she was visiting Dick and Catherine Ames down in Big Sandy, and they were very nice. But the main thing is some of the ladies down there, Mrs. Hammer and other ladies, invited her some teas, and she saw they were nice people, and they weren't all talking about the end of the world coming tonight or something like that. So then she began to be more friendly. She never became a church member, but she sometimes would go and hear me preach and uh, that kind of thing. But often we've had relatives who never forgave and would always hate you right up to the end for coming into the truth. And a lot of you know that. In Matthew chapter 10, brethren, turn with me to these scriptures because this is going to affect your life. And I think a lot of you know that. This, these types of things. In Matthew chapter 10, and I want to begin reading here in verse 16, Jesus Christ said to his disciples, and that's us today, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, therefore 
be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Now, that doesn't mean you don't preach the truth. You've got to do that, or we've got to do that. We ministers, and you should all be examples and so on, and talk about the Bible when you can and that type of thing. But you don't need to try to cram it down people's throats. Sometimes the Jehovah Witnesses overdo it. Most of them are very sincere, but they'll come right in and try to cram it down people's throats, and God does not want that approach. But beware of men. You see, God knows men's hearts. Beware of men, uh, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in the synagogues. And they did. They would beat them up right in the synagogues and religious buildings, and they may do that in our time before it's all over. Many, frankly, hundreds of thousands of early Protestants and Anabaptists and others were even beaten up right in the Catholic churches in Europe. And sometimes the, the local bishop would command them to be burned alive. And you've seen the old movie showing that. That happened in the Inquisition. It was horrible. You will be brought. It won't be some nice meeting like Mr. Armstrong would arrange to talk to some head of state. This time you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, don't worry about what you'll say. He shows God's Spirit will show you what to say on that day. Verse 22, And you will be hated by all. He didn't say some. The all meaning, obviously, not every human being on earth, but the vast majority. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. When the real trouble comes, will you endure to the end? I was telling Mr. Davis, who helps me get to and fro from work each day, about how in, Great, in, in Britain, and I think I've mentioned that here, I always, I always used to think that the uh, people in Britain were more religious and steadfast because generally the British are a little bit more steadfast once they change and do. And I thought the college over there was a little bit stronger religiously uh, than Pasadena because it was Mr. Armstrong's college. It was his favorite college at that time, and he spent more time there. But it was amazing. It was quite eye-opening to me. When Brickett Wood closed in June of 1974, we had several dozen employees, not as big as in Pasadena, but several dozen employees beside the students. And it's amazing how about three-fourths of them Way more than half, three-fourths or four-fifths, within the months following the closure of the college, they didn't just leave the college, they left the church. No paycheck, no God. No paycheck, no church. No paycheck, all of a sudden God's Sabbath was not a day of holy day that began Friday evening and ended Saturday evening. It's as though it never entered their head what it was all about. And I had to learn a lesson there. And many of us did, I think, as we've thought over the various times things like that happened at Pasadena, Big Sandy, and elsewhere. How would they react? How would you react, you know, if everything came apart here and we were chased out of town and this building wasn't here anymore? And some of us were hiding out in the west mountains of western North Carolina or up in West Virginia or somewhere else, and we had to move from a motel to motel to keep from being thrown in jail. Would you all just fall away? Would the Sabbath just cease to exist in your mind? Do you know God? Do you know that the Bible was inspired by the God who gives you life and breath? You've got to think that, about that ahead of time. 
What will you do personally when some of these things begin to happen? Because things like this, I can't say they'll happen exactly like they did in apostolic times. I've seen how Mr. Armstrong gave us the big picture, and I've tried to give you that. But it doesn't always happen exactly like we think. It happens in a sort of a slightly different way sometimes. God is bringing out down our nation right now in a slightly different way than what we supposed. But He is bringing us down, and there will be a later attack and captivity in Europe. But the way it's being brought down is through the extreme socialist, communist leaders who are taking over our government. And their people, because they tend to be super liberals, those types of people are often very smart, but they, they're, they know they're smart, and they're smart aleck, and so they hate God. They don't like to admit God in their knowledge. The wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. And often the people like that, when you think about the Harry Reeds and Nancy Pelosi's and, and uh, Rahm Emanuel's and the people that surround our president. They've been super liberals before they ever heard of Barack Obama. So we don't want to blame it all on Barack Obama. He's got a whole cadre of people around him like that. And it's big time. It's affecting our nation. There have been whole editorials in the last couple of days, and I started to bring one of them here and read you, but it's no, no reason to go off on that. I wouldn't have time for my basic points. This one editorial was showing from Charles Krauthammer, who is a very brilliant writer and political thinker, as many people recognize. He was showing how they're trying to crack down on the, uh, on the Fox News network. They're trying to drive them out of business. Why? Because that's the one network that really exposes what they're up to. And boy, they don't like that. So it's not like the Republicans being conservative. Now it's like Hitler started to do. He got rid of the media. He got rid of all the teachers who didn't go along with Nazism in the colleges and school system. He'd get rid of this class, get rid of that class. And you know, as some of the Jews mentioned and other writers, they would go after the Jews and this one writer, uh, who I guess wasn't any of those things, wrote later after the war. And he says, I didn't say anything because I was not a Jew. And then they went after this group, and I didn't say anything because it didn't seem wise to do so. And then they went after this Jew. And finally they came after me, and there was no one else left. <laughs> they didn't have any people that would oppose the regime. You see what I mean? You keep waiting and waiting. Well, we don't need to think like that because we don't need to get whipped up in some political movement. God is our banner. God is our protector. And He is real. And I have seen that for 60 years in the work of God. But we need to realize this thing is not so subtly happening. It's not very subtle, frankly, at all, as many of these writers and commentators are bringing out. So we have to realize that we will be brought before governors and kings. Why are you teaching that this nation is going down? Meredith, where do you get those crazy ideas? That's not patriotic. You're upsetting the national morale or put you in jail. They're going to say things like that before all of this is over. Don't kid yourself. You will be brought and they will deliver you up. Do not worry what to say. God's Spirit will give you what to say. And you will be hated by all nations. They won't like a work of the great God that shows their whole society is sick. It's wrong. Because we don't leave anybody out, do we? <laughs> In a sense, if you think about it, we're not trying to attack people, but when we show sin is everywhere, it really is everywhere. You think the, the Catholics are worse than the Protestants? No, they're not. 
They're all part of Babylon. They're all part of the same system, frankly. They're not worse than the Protestants. And the Jews are not worse than the Catholics, and the Catholics are not worse than the Jews. And none of them are worse than the others necessarily. Individually they can be, but they're all part of the same system. And we can rightly expose the media and education and the big bankers and the whole uh, system. This rips off the common man and they build house, add house upon house, as it says in, Reve in uh, the book of Isaiah, get themselves more property, more property, more riches, more buildings, more railroads, more whatever it is. They want to control everything. Then they want to control your life pretty soon and tell you when to spit, tell you when to go to the bathroom. That's what they want to do in a sense. It almost goes that far. So God is aware, but He shows this kind of thing will happen. And when they persecute in this city, flee to another. For surely I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, we're going through the cities of Israel. We have stations all over that cover most of the cities in America, but not all. We're not going to necessarily cover them all, but we're to give a general witness to most of the people in the cities of American Britain and Western Europe. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher if they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, you know, the, the father, the head of the demons. Why wouldn't they call you? So it's no great, do not fear them, he says then in verse 26, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed. He says in verse 28, Jesus Christ speaking, do not fear those who kill the body. Brethren, a lot of us would fear those who kill the body. Now, I don't as much as I used to because of my age, but even if you're younger, and I had to have this attitude, and I would say I did have it when I was 21, 22, 23 years old and had these guns pointed at me quite a number of times. I just had to go up there anyway, knowing there might be a gun. And on the way sometimes, when we would start toward the house or down the country road, why Raymond or Burke or I or Dr. Hare, whoever was with me, we'd just bow our heads and sometimes even pray together. One of us lead, Father, be with us, guide us, protect us if the man up there has a gun. And then we'd go up on the front porch anyway. And you've heard me tell about in Louisiana, this redneck guy came out and challenged us as we were going to visit his wife. We started up the steps of his shanty, and uh, he, he looked menacingly at us. He was a little bigger, but he was, he was kind of flabby and out of shape. I was with Ted Armstrong, and you might not believe this, but I was Ted's leader. I was his Bible teacher, and he, I was the leader of the tour. But we were together, became good friends during that tour, and as we got up to the top of the steps, he came out. He said, Where are you boys from? Ambassador College. Armstrong! And he grabbed this cane chair and going to bring it right down on our heads with all of his might. And it kind of made later some little cuts in the skin, but we grabbed the chair and wrestled around. I'm going to get the gun, he said, and he went inside to get the gun. Well, Ted and I had both been dedicated at that time, and so we just stood there. Maybe we should have run, but we just bowed our heads. I didn't tell him what to do, and he didn't tell me. We just automatically bowed our heads and asked God to protect us, and he came back with another chair. 
I love to see that chair. <laughs> Boy, another chair. So we grabbed that chair, and pretty soon we were down in the front yard wrestling around, and it was kind of fun. You know, you look back on it, it kind of looked like ridiculous because his poor, heavy-set wife came running around crying from the edge of the house, and she had her towel, you know, on her clothes wrapped in her towel for baptism, and she was crying. And so as we were wrestling him, and he called us all kinds of unusual names that I dare not repeat every name he could think of, then... Uh, I yelled at her several times. I said, go call Big Sandy. Call Big Sandy, the operator, and get tent Ken Swisher, Ken Swisher, and he will baptize you. You can go up there and be baptized, or he will come here. Later she did. I yelled that out two or three times So while we were wrestling him, and then we had to push him one direction, and we jumped in the car and took off. But anyway, I've told you that before, but we had lots of things like that. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. We need to fear the great God and really do that and not be afraid during these coming trials. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? He knows. You say, well, how could he know? Well, mankind invents these little machines. They're getting littler now all the time, and yet they can process billions of pieces of information, hundreds of billions with a B. What kind of God do you worship? What kind of mind does God have? Little, little man, our little puny minds, we invent that kind of machine. Of course God can take or keep track of those things if He wants to. I don't think He sits around worrying about it, but He's got a way of tra keeping track of it if he wants to any time. But he says, verse 30, this is the key, brethren, think about it. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows every single hair on our head. And so he knows every part of our body. If there's some part of your liver that has a cancer in it or of your spleen or of your stomach or your back or some other kind of injury you have, you know what I mean as I pray for some of you who heard me say, Father, you know exactly what's wrong on this person's body. I'll ask you what you have, and if I can give you some general advice or encouragement, that's fine. I can't give you specific medical advice, but may give you some general advice. It's good to know what I'm praying about. But the doctor might be wrong. And if you read medical books and even these magazine articles about the doctors, they often admit that. Some of them will tell you, go get a second opinion because they're wrong part of the time. And they know that. God is never wrong. He knows exactly what's wrong with you and He can heal it if He chooses to do so. So the very hairs of your head, He can protect you. He can watch over you. He knows whether that gun is loaded that's being pointed at you. He knows whether the man will shoot it or not. Or he knows whether the barrel is jammed and it won't work anyway. You know what I mean? He knows all kinds of things you don't know. And if you're really converted and trust Him, He is your Father. He is your Father and He will take care of you. And you've got to believe that. Do not fear, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I also will confess before my Father in heaven." So we've got to confess Christ before men, not in the sense we've always got to go out and preach all the time, but we've got to tell them what we believe and why whenever the opportunity presents itself and never be ashamed of Jesus Christ or His message. But whoever denies me before men, him will I also deny before my Father in heaven. 
Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. You know, the Protestants in the church I grew up in, they often just talk about little Lord Jesus, the way in the manger and everything's peaceful. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Everything's sweet and nice and calm. No, it's not always that way. Those old Christmas songs, the older brethren, I trust, have heard all that, but that's what we used to sing. Do not think that I came to bring peace. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, that same Jesus Christ said. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes will be those of his own household. Often those of your own family will turn on you, as many of you have experienced. I know my first secretary was named Elva Russell. I've told Monica about her. And you know, Elva still keeps in touch. And every now and then she writes me. And also she writes my wife. And my wife got a message from her just a few days ago, I think it was. And she's nodding. And, and she's very friendly. She and her husband are in the church, our church, out in Los Angeles. And uh, she's up in her 70s now and a grandmother. And uh, no, not a grandmother yet. But anyway... Uh, she still is very faithful, but she was very zealous. But she had to run away from home. She left all the way from Texas and got on a Greyhound bus without ever telling her parents because she knew they'd try to stop her. And she got out there, and pretty soon the local policeman with the policewoman came and talked to her. But when they found she was past 18 and she wanted to be there anyway, they left her alone. But, you know, they were, they were trying to get her to go back home to Mama. And she knew she had to leave a young woman to obey God. But she was very wonderful in the service of God and still tries to be faithful and help. A man's foes will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross. And in those days, brethren, you know this if you think about it, there in Palestine, or Israel, we should say, they all knew about that. They had seen men hanging on crosses up and down the road every now and then, screaming and crying and murmuring and yelling and moaning as they sometimes hung four or five days up there just coming apart before they finally died. A horrible way to die. So it had meaning more than it does today. You've got to be willing to go through everything. He who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life, are you trying to find your life? Now, if I were trying to find my life, I would try to get into some way or would have years ago, kind of late now, I guess, to go off and start a business and make a lot of money. I have a son who makes a whole lot of money, about five times what I do, and that's fine. I'm glad he does. Maybe it's seven or eight times, I should say. But that's not the point. I, don't, I would not trade places with any him at any time. I would not trade places with Bill Gates in any way under any circumstances. And my wife knows that deeply. We've talked about that. That would not make me one bit happier. I have the greatest knowledge of any that any humans can have. I know the true God and why we're here and what it's all about and where we're going. And Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and all these other rich guys, they don't know that. And when these things happen, they're going to be scared spitless. They're going to be shaking, some of them, literally shaking. And it's much better to know God. 
But, you know, if I had a whole lot of money, well, my wife and I could go to Fiji and we could go to Switzerland and climb the mountains and she's always wanted to see Venice and we could fly down to Venice, Italy and go in the gondolas and go here and there and I love to travel. We could just go all over and do all kinds of things. But that's not our purpose for being. Our purpose for being is getting out the message. If in the work of God we can see some nice places once in a while, that's fine. I had a wonderful feast, by the way. He doesn't make us all live in dungeons all day long. Uh, and Kauai. And the reason I went there is because I could only go to one feast site. It was better because of my stroke. And three of my sons were out there anyway. Uh, and, and it was really good to go with where most of them were going to be. I thought they were all four going to be there at one point. So I decided to go there. And that was wonderful. I'd been there before. It's a beautiful place. And so we enjoyed that. But we didn't get to see Hanalei Bay and then we're going to have lunch up over this beautiful bay where they filmed the special film in South Pacific and the Grand Canyon of the Pacific out there because we were so busy. I had to preach four sermons and then give a senior citizen's talk. Uh, and every day it seemed like we had something going. So maybe later we'll go back and see that other stuff. But the other stuff is not that as important as being with God's people. And so we did enjoy it very much. But if I just constantly seek to find my life and go to the latest movies and see the latest plays on Broadway and go to the most beautiful places in the world and all that, I, I, I must not do that. And you must not either. Whatever it is you think you've got to do humanly. He who finds his life, if that's your purpose, will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. That doesn't mean that you go around punishing yourself. God does not demand that. You can have a nice life, but your main goal is to honor God, frankly. The greatest commandment, the first and great commandment, is to love the eternal God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Jesus said that. The second commandment is to love your neighbors yourself. You know, in the world, and Methodism and most of these other churches, when I meet people in the world, including one of my next-door neighbors, well, we're Christian, and we really love the Lord, and we, we try to keep the golden rule. He didn't say they do, they do do it, but they try. So they try to love their neighbor in their own way, under their own terms, of course, people like that. But they don't really understand the first and great commandment, you see, because you've got to love God with all your being far more than you love anyone or anything because if you get that relationship right, you see, if you have the fear of God and you really do love God and have Him living His life in you and you love everything He stands for, then you automatically will begin to love your neighbor and you'll have the help from God's Holy Spirit to know how to love your neighbor and the strength to do it. So the first and great commandment is to have that fear of God. He who finds his life wants to just do what he wants to do, when he wants to do it, how he wants to do it, will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So each of us, brethren, we've got to have that attitude in the years to come because we're going to be having a lot of persecution and a lot of problems. And I think most of you know that, but it's very, very important to realize. Now turn back to First Peter at this point, if you would. The first epistle of Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, and let's begin reading here in verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, uh, which is to, concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened. 
Some people in the church, they get in a trial, they say, how could God let this happen to me? Well, He lets things happen to all of us. I could not understand why my first wife, Margie McNair, died at age 40. Some of you had mates who died when they were 55 or 65 or 75, and that's awful. It's not fun. But if they die at age 40, wow, you think, what is going on? And yet she was very dedicated, very kind. She was not perfect, but she was a wonderful help and a, I think a Christian in every way. And why? I don't know to this day. As I said, I don't know fully why God allowed Mr. Carl McNair to die. I don't know fully why allowed God Mr. John Owen to die. And I don't fully why he allowed the Milwaukee tragedy. That was really strange, the Milwaukee tragedy. But God allows things like that from time to time. And later we'll look back and we'll understand. But we don't always understand right at the time. But don't think it's a strange thing. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, that's the point, not because you've done something bad, for the name of Christ, what He stands for, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part He's blasphemed, but on your part He is glorified. He says in verse 17, the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. God is trying and testing us. And I'll tell you now, I think the time for judgment on the house of God in a certain way may be coming sooner now, obviously, than a few years ago, because as this movement toward the super liberals in America and the United States of Europe building, uh, Mr. Bonjour, uh, I just took him and his wife to lunch the other day, and they gave me a uh, two or three uh, newspapers from Manila, the Philippines, and I about the flooding, you know, the terrible typhoon and the suffering there, and so that was helpful. I was just looking through the paper in general. When I get a foreign paper, I sometimes look through it just to see their slant and what general ideas. And right on page four or nine or whatever it was back in the middle, they had this about of a quarter of a page article where the uh, Catholic uh, Church and the uh, the uh, EU were strongly, and it was backed by the local Catholic bishop, I think, they were pressuring the Philippine government to uh, sign up for the International Criminal Court, the ICC. They wanted to get the whole Philippines under this criminal court, which is headquartered in the European common market. And a lot of you don't read all this stuff all the time, so I don't want to take 10 minutes to explain it. But what they're trying to do, if you've read widely, you know they have even threatened to bring Donald Rumsfeld, our former Secretary of Defense, and Dick Cheney, our Vice President, and try them as criminals because they got us into or helped get us into uh, Iraq. And they think that was wrong. They would like to come over here and seize our officials with whom they disagree, maybe even seize President Bush if they could, and others who are not the super liberals, and grab them and take them back to Europe and put them on trial. It is a damnable conspiracy that's being hatched over there. It really is, brethren. And you need to realize it's very, very serious. They're trying to get all the world signed up under their version of what they think is right and wrong, led by these Catholic liberal Europeans. Britain is not like that. And many British have gone along with it. But there may be a reaction. 
And as I've told you before, I could stick my neck out. I'm going to say this. You could just hold it against me if you want to later. But Britain is going to get out before the final group of ten is solidified. They will be either put out or they will get out. And they're talking about having a referendum on this EU, this Lisbon Treaty, which is the Lisbon Treaties just putting that old constitution they rejected and sneaking it back in where it doesn't have to have a full vote from the country and, and calling it a treaty, and yet it's binding just like a, a, a constitutional item. And that's wrong. But that's what they're doing. They're very clever, and they're turning up the heat gradually. You know the story, if any of you don't, about the frog in the pan. The man, the scientist, puts the frog in the pan, and if you heat up, turn up the heat under the pan very, very gradually, very gradually, pretty soon the frog is cooking, and it's too late because the heat comes up so gradually the frog doesn't realize it. Now, that's what happened to many of our brethren in the worldwide church of God. And I know them, and I taught thousands of them personally, and I love them. But the heat was turned up so gradually because Mike and Joe and the other young smart ladies say, well, just a little clarification here, just a little, little change, just a little modification. They were turning up the heat gradually. Well, I could figure it out more quickly than others, not because I'm so smart, but because I'd been their Bible teacher and I knew their attitude anyway, and that was, they weren't very impressive to me, and I'd been through these things before. Exactly. I saw the liberals, some of them the same people. I better not name all their names here. Give Tom uh, Turner a headache here. He's our legal advisor. He'll say, cut that part of the tape out. <laughs> Bring on lawsuit. But I know who they are. And they did the same thing back in the 70s. They were trying to get us to go liberal and gradually do away with the Sabbath and do away with and Mr. Carry-On back there was uh, uh, dedicated. And uh, we had a man temporarily over the French work and the liberals tried to push Mr. Apartheid aside for a while. And so this man got up, this liberal minister, and said, we're doing away, by the way, with the day, with the unclean meats in the church in Brussels. <clears throat> and after hearing him explain it for a little bit, while well, Mr. Jean Carrion, our minister in Brussels, got up and walked out. He didn't wave a flag at anyone, but his whole family got up and walked out with him. And before it was all over, Mr. Party knows the details, about half or three-fourths of the whole church got up and walked out. They were in deep trouble. So Mr. Armstrong heard about it, and he put Mr. Apartheid back over the French work and put the other fellow off somewhere else. Well, then the other fellow came back for a while, and he was so nice, because he has a nice personality, and he impressed Danny Luker and me during the, the time of 79, the, the receivership. Well, he really wanted to be right now, and so we kept him in the ministry. But then when the liberals took over again, he went right off with them again and out. Sometimes they get into that and they can't help themselves. But at any rate, so to speak, they're so weak they don't see the big picture. They have not been grounded in the truth. They, they want to go with the current political situation. You, my brethren, must not go with the current political situation. If I lead you away from the truth and turn away from God's law and from God's Sabbath, God's holy days, and all the basic ways of God, then you need to go elsewhere just like I did. You do. But if we hear Mr. Ames and Dr. Winnale and I and Mr. Partin and all our other leaders hold on to the basic truth and preach the truth and we do the work and get the message of the kingdom of God out, then you should stay 
if you see that as being done, and it is being done. But you don't follow us. You follow us, as Mr. Armstrong said, as we follow Christ. Well, you're not following Christ perfectly. Oh, yeah, that's true. I agree with that 100%. Tell me who is following Christ perfectly. You know what I mean? Nobody. We are following Christ more completely as an organization, I deeply feel, than anyone else. But God knows our hearts, and there are people in different fellowships who are individually better Christians than maybe hundreds of our members, and some of us in this room, no doubt. And maybe God will bring them with us later. We can pray that He will. So we don't need to have any reason to get self-righteous about it. The time is going to come for judgment to begin at the house of God. What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, it doesn't mean that you've got to be afraid all the time. But on the other hand, you can't say, I'm just going to walk along the edge of the cliff continually and come to church once in a while and smoke a little bit or drink a little bit extra or, you know, do a little extra sex stuff over here on the side or misuse money or steal my tithe from God or play games with God in whatever way you think you could get away with it. God is not pleased with that. If the righteous are scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God and the trials that are coming commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. And my brethren, we want to always think in our minds and hearts and understand, as I've experienced for 60 years, we do have a faithful Creator. He will always take care of us. We'll go through some awful things. And at the moment, they look awful, but in the end, they will work out all right, and you will see that. Anyway, that's what we have to understand. Now, I want us to turn to Acts now, if you would, and see a little bit about the persecution that took place in earlier days and what we can expect. And it's not going to be exactly the same, as I've said, but there will be similar things. Turn to Acts chapter 5, if you would. <clears throat> Acts chapter 5, and he's been talking about Peter uh, putting out Ananias and Sapphira and actually causing God struck them down dead because they tried to lie to God's apostle. So it says in verse 11, Acts 5, verse 11, So great fear came upon the church and upon all who heard these things. And through the hands of the apostles, not just Peter, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they all with one accord on Solomon's porch. And even the shadow of people, Peter, even his shadow healed people. It was amazing. Also a multitude gathered together from surrounding cities, bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits. Remember, Jesus always said, heal the sick, cast out demons. And they were all healed. Then the high priest rose up and those with him, and they laid hands on the apostles, put them in the common prison. Well, here one day the apostles are here in front of our congregation and you're all applauding them or maybe at the feast in Sunset Beach and you have over a thousand people, you know, and they're held in honor. The next day they're a prisoner over here in a jail somewhere. Things can change quick, <laughs> right? Things can change very, very quickly. And you need to realize that. And you think ahead of time, what will you do? What will your reaction be? So they were put in prison... But at night, 
an angel of the eternal opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life, the whole way of life that God had. So the angel, and God still has angels, as I said in a previous sermon, if they ever threatened me, and they threatened me to put me in this tremendous, powerful, high-security prison they have out west of Denver somewhere, would I be afraid? No, it wouldn't make any difference to me one way or the other. I don't care how high security it is or they could have a thousand helicopters around. It doesn't make it. Do you think God was impressed by that? Of course not. He can get you out wherever they put. They can put you in. Because they were strapping you to here and put you in this missile and we're going to shoot you out to the moon. You'll just die out there on the moon. Ha ha. Well, if God lets it happen, of course it could happen. But probably he wouldn't let that happen just to teach them a lesson, even though we might not be perfect. So God is in charge. He let them out on that occasion. Yet the last five years of Paul's life were mainly spent in prison. And God did not let him get out. Well, they let him get out after about four years. Then he was out for a while and then came back and was in prison again at the end of his life, as you know. So he tests us as he tested Paul and things like that. Anyway, uh, going on now uh, to... uh, I want to get old to 27. They were brought before the high priest who asked him, Did we not strictly command you not to preach in Christ's name? They were threatened. And look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered, Listen, here's what they said. We ought to obey God rather than men. So if the authorities arrest me or you and put us in prison or threaten us in any way and say, you've got to turn away from your religion or give up this God of the Bible or whatever. You'll say, we're sorry, we can't do that. And they might have some big men beat you up or something. We don't know or leave you in prison, but you've got to obey God. That doesn't mean that you taunt them back or sassy or bring it on yourself. There's a right balance in there, but you can humbly trust in God, which they did. And uh, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus and showed how he had been killed and they, they did it. So when they heard this, verse 33, they were furious and took counsel to kill them. But one of their wisest men, this teacher of the rabbis, the most famous teacher of rabbis at that time, Gamaliel rose up, said, be careful. If this thing is not of God, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, verse 39, you cannot overthrow it lest you even be found to fight against God. So he understood to a degree, even though carnal. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, even then they had to do something. They were so filled with rage, so they didn't kill them. But they perhaps, you know, strapped them up to some post here and got a cat and nine tails. And maybe their backs were bleeding when they got through with the beating. Very humiliating. Very humiliating. They were beaten that they should not speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. So they departed. And what did they do? Say, oh, my God, let us come. we can't understand this. How come the church allowed this to happen? What kind of God is this? They went out rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. That was their attitude. And daily in the temple and in every house... Again, they were taking their lives in their hands when they did it. They did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So they kept right on 
doing the direct work God had commanded them to do, but they never advocated the overthrow of Caesar or of the Roman Empire or anything like that. So you have to have that right balance. It's hard to get that right balance. They showed respect. God's true servants showed respect to the religious authorities and certainly to the civil authorities, but they did no violence. They didn't try to start a march on Washington, and so to speak, or get a group of men to come with guns and kill somebody or anything like that at all. Now notice back in Acts 7 when they had got Stephen here and were ready to kill him. In Acts chapter 7, turn over a couple of verses. And here as Stephen showed that he had seen Christ at the right hand of God after he gave this strong sermon condemning them, then in verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice. Here's the whole Sanhedrin, apparently, the leading Jews. They cried out, yelling, ran at him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, remember, who became the apostle Paul. And they stoned Stephen as he was what? Cussing them and calling a bunch of black, you know, blankety-blank so-and-sos. Now, that's what I would have done uh, 70 years ago when I was a teenager. I'd say, you so-and-so-and-so. That would have been my normal reaction. And that's the normal reaction of most people. But no, he called on God as he was dying, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He followed Christ's example. And that's what we've got to do. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And he fell asleep. They persecuted Jesus Christ, the religious authorities. It would be like the council, the whole National Council of Churches put, you know, Mr. Armstrong on trial or Mr. Ames or one of us, all the great respected religious leaders and had him killed. But what did Jesus do? He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They don't really understand. And brethren, as these times come on us, please study your Bible. Read it. Not just read it, but study it. Drink in of it. Feed on the Bible. Make it part of the way you think and the way you react. Then you will understand. You will understand the mind of God. And the mind of God is not that we're nicey-nice and we're afraid of violence. I was not nicey-nice. I was always a little bit smaller than average, but I was almost average for my size. I was a little taller than average, I guess, but tiny bit, but a little bit less heavy, a little thinner, but very fat, fat, and won two Golden Gloves boxing championships and had, you know, cuts all over my hand from rock fights and all the other stuff I got into. And, and people knew me as one who wasn't afraid. I'd take chances the other boys didn't do over and over again, and they knew that. When my friend Ducky would get in trouble and assassing some neighborhood boys or then I would have to jerk them off and throw them down and run them off so they didn't beat up on Ducky because he was a little smaller and I did things like that over and over but I can't do that today I've got to rely on God and you do too we can't just say we're going to get him and we're going to do this or that we've got to trust God not because we're sissies fellows they're thinking about this but because we have the courage and the faith to trust in the Creator who gives us our life and our breath, and even if it costs us our life, we will trust in God rather than taking the life of another man to defend ourselves. If someone assaults my wife, 
or starts to, then it's all right for me to grab him or keep him from it as best I can. But I can't carry a gun and try to kill him, and I shouldn't do that. So you've just got to learn to get that right balance. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. They really don't. They're not converted. They don't understand. They don't get it. And we've got to forgive them knowing that. And then back here in Acts chapter 12, we find some more examples, not just of the religious authorities, but now the civil authorities. Sometimes it will be, might be later the Attorney General of the United States. Or it might be the state governor, the state attorney general, or people like that that try to take us prisoner or do something or stop our religious service or shut us down and are mean about it. We don't know. But about the, that time, Acts 12, verse 1, Herod the king. So he was the local king over this part of the world under the Roman Empire. Stretch out his hand to harass some of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, the original James, you know. And then later, James, the Lord's brother, was converted, and he became the leading James. But this our first James, one of the original twelve, was killed. Did God permit that? Yes, he did. He permitted one of his earliest apostles to be killed. He died prematurely. So he killed James, and because he saw it pleased the Jews, the Jews hated this sect of the Nazarenes and other names they called them, the Ebionites, and so they were trying to stamp them out. Because it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also, so he was going to put him in prison and kill him. Now, it was during the days of unleavened bread. Why was that? Was Peter keeping it? Yes. It was that day because the church was keeping it, not because Herod was. So when they had put, he had put and apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered into four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. So they were observing the Passover and days of unleavened bread, or Luke would not be inspired to write it in this way. Peter was therefore kept in prison. So here was God's leading apostle in prison like a common criminal, not because the Jews put him there, but this time the Roman authorities did the governor of, of North Carolina or California or wherever we'd be or some local authority put in there, the civil authorities. Sometimes the civil authorities will be stirred up by the religious authorities. You know that. It says in Revelation 17, the woman rides the beast. So our brethren in Europe may be affected even more directly that way because as this great fallen woman influences the political powers in the coming European empire, they will then do the dirty work for the church. They will crack down on the church. And some of you brethren in Europe who hear this later, it will be the civil authorities, but perhaps under the influence of the great fallen church. So these things will happen in a slightly different way, but these things will happen. But prayer was constantly offered to God for him by the church. They didn't give up on him. They didn't say, oh, he's just in jail. He must be a bad guy. And it shows how then God got him out. And he was let out. But James was not let out. James was killed, you see. So Peter was got out, but James was killed. So it depends. God, uh, God knows what's best. We just have to say that as these things work out. And he does work out things in the end. Brethren, as the future unfolds, there will be two main sources of persecution. First will be the religious leaders, 
they will be upset and come after us and stir people up against us as we get stronger and stronger here and perhaps even more in Europe where they have more influence. Secondly will be the civil leaders. The political and governmental leaders will come after us and try to shut us down. They may not always do that through violence, they may just simply kick us off of all stations and shut down our halls that we could rent and have ways like that. I used to think, and I honestly expected it, my family all knew that way back when, that I, I thought it was coming and might come. And if, and if I, I kept thinking, when are we going to get thrown in jail and beaten up? And it never happened. And here I am, nearly 80 years old. And so I think now if God had these young uh, uh, policemen and Gestapo-type people beating up on Mr. Apartheid and me, well, uh, we wouldn't be in jail very many months. We'd probably be dead real quick because we can't really take that the way we could have when we were younger men. So maybe God knows all that, and if we're still living, He will let them do it a different way. You see what I mean? But we don't know. We just have to know that God will let this type of thing happen and be sure that we are walking with God. All of us, you have got to be walking with God where you have the mind of God. And that's the key thing. So uh, be sure that that is the situation with you. So God commands us, though, brethren, to show respect to any leader, even another religious leader, but especially a political leader, those in government. And you read about that in Romans chapter 13. I might tell you the story. I was on the... Uh, SS America coming back from England with Mr. and Mrs. Armstrong and Dick Armstrong in 19, uh, 1954. And uh, we'd gone over on the United States and came back on the SS America. And it was fun being on these two big ships. But anyway, as we came out from uh, uh, Southampton, well, the ship slowed down and kind of just stayed in one place there, whether the motor's running or whatever they were to call it just off Cobe, southern Ireland, and they sent out a tender, a smaller boat, and the, the boat was filled with Catholic priests. They had on their black robes and all this stuff, and there was a, a New York Jew lawyer standing next to me by the railing, and I'd been playing shuffleboard or something, and he looked toward Ireland. He says, that's where they grow them. And uh, so <laughs> the Catholic priest coming out from Ireland and But they got on board, and a lot of them were just about my age. I was just 24 years old, and they were nice young men. And so I thought, what should I do? I thought, well, I don't need to hate them. They're just confused young guys. They don't know the truth. And so uh, they, they'd come around uh, the ship during the following five days on the high seas. You know, you're more friendly. You're all stuck out there together, and it treats a kind of a camaraderie. And I didn't say father. Of course, I was going to call them father. And so I just said, good morning. And they'd say good morning. They could figure out real quick that I wasn't a Catholic. And they were friendly. Good morning. How are you? We just, how are you doing? Okay. And then we'd play shuffleboard or table tennis. And I won the table tennis championship on the SS America. I think I have proof of that somewhere. The, the main proof was taken away, though. I think my wife, Cheryl, may have thrown it away, or maybe my first wife did. Maybe it got all banged up. It was a, it was a, uh, it was an ashtray. <laughs> it was a fancy ashtray with an anchor. said SS America and something about the table tennis. But I played some of these Catholic priests and others. But I was pretty good at table tennis. 
because when I came to Ambassador College, I'd been playing basketball and football and track and boxing, and all we had at Ambassador College at first was table tennis. <laughs> so we had lots of table tennis, and Raymond and I used to play Mr. Herbert Armstrong. He'd come over to Mayfair and wanted to play table tennis to kind of warm up and before he'd make a program, and so it was kind of fun. We didn't know he was God's apostle then, and he didn't either, but he liked to play table tennis too. just get up a little bit of perspiration. So we played table tennis with him dozens of times. And don't tell him I said this, but he, uh, we did let him beat us on occasion, and I, so he didn't feel too bad. <laughs> I think he knew that, but we didn't always try to beat him. We didn't want to send him into the radio studio feeling bad. <laughs> anyway, in Romans 13, Romans chapter 13, verse 1, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Now, that doesn't mean they're all perfect, but God is the one that established the offices, and He doesn't want chaos. If you have utter chaos, then you may have men out raping your wives and daughters and killing you and doing everything. So it's better to have a certain degree of order, even though it's not perfect. There is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. And some people say, how on earth did these people get in government who are there now? Well, God allowed it, because it was God's time to bring us down swiftly, and things are speeding up, and He's brought in the people that will do that job. And again, I say, I mean it sincerely. It isn't just Barack Obama. It's all these people around him. This Nancy Pelosi has been a super liberal from the most rotten, one of the most rotten cities in the world. You know, she's from San Francisco. She's got all these perverts out there that she represents and so on. And uh, Harry Reid has always been a super liberal and uh, all the rest of them there. And Rom, there was a whole editorial about the Chicago way. And if we don't agree with this, bang, you know, and they're, they're, that's what they're following now the, as the daily machine operated in Chicago. But God's allowed it to humble us. For rulers are not a terror to good works, so they're not killing anyone. They're just going to slow you down and make you pray harder. But to evil, do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. As long as we teach the truth and do the work in a right way without just being super, you know, uh, provocative, why, we will be all right. I wouldn't say this on television because that would be provocative, but I can say it to you in the church right here. For he is God's minister who is the local policeman who pulls you over if you've gone too fast. You say, well, I didn't go too fast. Well, you probably did. <laughs> but anyway, even if you didn't, well, you should submit to him. For he is God's servant. Minister means servant. He's God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister to avenge and to execute wrath on him who practices evil. You see, God put them there to preserve a degree of order in the land. And so that part is good and necessary, and you're to honor the office. You may disagree with the man, and sometimes policemen can be insulting or rough, but you should honor the office. And so you, if some authority or some religious authority is just hateful and mean, you do not honor his acts. You could disagree with his acts, but you do not want to hate his person. He is a fellow human being. 
He is blind, as Jesus said about these men, railing and screaming against him and spitting in his face. Come on, you smart lake prophet. If you're the son of God, show who hit you. They'd blindfold him and then hit him. Come on, smart lake, tell us about it. Get down from the cross. You can imagine all the things they did. How mad Jesus could have got. He could have brought down fire from heaven and wiped them all out. He knew that. But he did not do that. It was not God's time to do that. So we're to have his attitude. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. They don't get it. They really, truly do not understand. So we've got to have that attitude. Okay, let's go on to First uh, Timothy now, brethren. First Timothy chapter 2. A lot of you know where I'm going here, which is fine. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, Paul writes, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. You see, the president, his cabinet, the Congress, the Supreme Court, the state and local governors and mayors and all in authority. Why? That we may, not why, that God will convert them all? No, you're not necessarily praying that. You might hope some of them would get converted, but the main thrust of your prayer is here, that we, God's people, may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, that we may be able to have a degree of peace in doing the work of God. And brethren, in the last 60 years that I've been part of the work of God since my freshman year in college, uh, we had a little bit more persecution and wild men coming around in the first few years but overall there, no one has ever been shot on in line of duty except maybe our our martyrs in Milwaukee and uh, they, it wasn't just doing the way it was kind of a crazy guy in our own church frankly so it's strange but at any rate we haven't had that kind of thing come on us yet God has been very good to us so we're to pray that we may live a godly life and do the work. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The word there, knowledge, by the way, is epignosis, E-P-I, and then gnosis, which is knowledge. It means an overview. God is not causing everyone to know all the truth, but he wants everyone to come to an overview of the church, at least grasp the big picture, where to preach that and hope that God will help all of them do that as a witness. So, brethren, what lies ahead? Well, we know when you read Revelation 12, as I've explained, there's going to be a great battle coming up, a spiritual battle where Satan and his demons try to assault God's throne one more time, and they're cast back down to this earth. And when he comes down, he knows that he has but a short time. And he's going to stir up the religious authorities and he's going to stir up, you know, the civil authorities against us. And it's going to be very bad. There are going to be a lot of oddballs and demon-possessed and demon-influenced people around too. It's going to be very bad when that happens. That has not happened yet. One self-appointed prophet who is not a prophet any more than Mickey Mouse, but that man said it's already happened. It's not happened at all. And, and we'll see very quickly when that happens. It has not happened. But we're going to have that happen. And then we will see this work as these things occur, beginning to have much more growth and impact. And as we walk with God, we will do the signs and have more of those toward the end, I'm quite sure, of healing the sick, discerning spirits, casting out demons. We're already getting news. I had some 
uh, even this morning sent from one of our members how a number of more healings are taking place in our churches, and that's very encouraging. We are getting more, not as many as we should get, but more are occurring by far this last year or so. And as we pray and cry out for those gifts, we will get them. And then the European power, the beast will rise up. We'll see that. Nations getting together. There won't be 27 as there are now. Eventually there'll be groupings. They talk about the Benelux nations as a group, you know, Belgium and Holland and uh, anyway, some of our brethren might know the exact one, but they'll group them together. There'll be 10 nations or 10 groups of nations, 10 kings. It never mentions 10 nations, but 10 kings, 10 leaders will get together at the end. And again, I'll stick my neck out. It will not include Britain. Britain will get out or be put out. And then the great whore will rise up and this false prophet in Europe will rise up and begin to perform miracles and that will deceive a lot of people and they will begin to persecute our people in Europe perhaps even more than over here. So we have to realize all these things will begin to happen and uh, millions of Protestants will come back to Mother Rome, the Mother Church. Many of you have read, but for those of you who haven't, get on the Internet or get the day before yesterday's paper or something. But there have been major articles on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, which is not a religious paper, I trust you understand, but a major front page article showing how Rome is changing their constitution to allow all who want of the 77 million member Anglican communion around the world to come back under very good terms. The priests, Anglican priests who are married could keep their wives. They're watering things down to get the, the, the harlot daughters to come back to Mother Rome. It's the strongest, most powerful, unusual outreach the Mother Church has exhibited in many, many decades, perhaps hundreds of years. One article said the strongest thing like that since the Reformation. They're trying to get the daughters to come back to Mother it's going to be very powerful. Lots of these ministers in this city right here, these good evangelical ministers, they'll get scared. They'll want to go along. You know, everyone wants to go along to keep their job, to keep their position. They'll go to Mother Rome eventually. Don't kid yourself. They will. I know human nature. In the meantime, here in America, we're going to have a horrible economic collapse. The dollar will go way down continually. And well, not continually. It's kind of like this. It's, you know, it doesn't go straight down like coming down from, I climbed the highest mountain in the United States a number of years ago, Mount Whitney. And when you come down, you don't go straight down. Otherwise, you'd fall down and kill yourself. It kind of goes down and then around and then up a rig rock and then down, kind of down, down. The general direction is down. That's the way the dollar is going. It's going to keep on going down. Our economy will go down. And we will have food and water problems. And they're showing even now in today's paper how there's some uh, problems looming with the food supply and all over the world, it shows they have one billion people without food right now. It's getting very bad. There will be class riots. There will be race riots. And I want to say that because we do have a number of beloved black brethren and uh, Latino brethren and others. And what we have to do is to understand what God tells us continually. He describes Babylon as this whole system, as you know, and then he tells us what? Come out of her, my people. Our citizenship is in heaven. We who are white, so to speak. We're not all exactly white. We're many of us a mixture. But we are 
We are all part of God's family. And we are not male or female or black or white in God's church. Dr. Benjamin Ray, who was my dear friend, and I named my older son Michael Ray after him, R-E-A. He was from Ruston, Louisiana, a very dedicated man. And he was a teacher there in Ambassador College, head of the Spanish work for a while. And he used to tell the uh, students, because we had more of the Civil War still going on way back in the early 50s, you know, this north-south idea. And so he'd tell them, he said, which part of Babylon are you from? Think about it. Which part of Babylon are you proud to be from? It's all part of Babylon. The north is Babylon. The south is Babylon. The black community is Babylon. The white community is Babylon. The Latino community is Babylon. The Catholic church is Babylon. But the Protestant churches are equally Babylon. We're all part of Babylon. So come out of Babylon. And God tells us in Galatians chapter 3, Let's turn there briefly, brethren. Galatians chapter 3. He tells us this. I can get back here. Verse 27. For as many as you, you Christians, as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. You're to have Christ living in you. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. We can say black or white today. There is neither male nor female even. That doesn't mean we share the same bathroom, but spiritually speaking, we're all one. In a most profound way, we are one. Our hopes, our dreams, our whole purpose in life should be the same. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. All of us have that promise of eternal possession of this earth because of the promise given to Abraham, the father of all the faithful. Was he the father of the Jews? There wasn't any Jew. Think about it. When Abraham was alive, there wasn't any Jew. <laughs> Judah was Abraham's great-grandson, and uh, that's the father of the Jews. Anyway, so you must think in advance, brethren, about what to do when these things come up. So don't take the white side, don't take the black side, don't take the Democratic side, don't take the Republican side, and you men don't take the macho men side if it comes up about the feminists, and you women don't take the feminist side. Let's all take the Christian side. We are Christ's, and the big thing is Galatians 2, verse 20. That is the biggest thing of all. You've got to have that, otherwise everything else goes by the board. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, Paul said. Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. If we become that kind of Christians and seek God and walk with God and try to see the big picture and think in advance, how do we react for the coming trials and tests and persecutions. How should we react? Think about it. Pray about it. Meditate about it in advance. Because in the time, it'll hit you and you'll react the wrong way sometimes. Pray about it. Then you can have Christ living His life in you and you will react as a Christian and God will bless you and make you part of His eternal family and you will be able to walk with Christ and talk with Christ and walk with God and talk with Christ and be part of the kingdom of God, the government of God under Christ over this earth, 
and the very family of God as God's full sons in God's inner family forever and bear the name of God because you have genuinely become like His Son through His Spirit, through Christ in you, the hope of glory.